And what happens is, is we build up all these fragmented parts of who we are. And those parts are these protectors that are just working all day, every day on high alert to manage the impermissible feelings of that exiled part that got so thrown out in the, in the dust. Welcome to Better with Dr. Stephanie. I am your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for women just like you with a deep desire for learning, self-actualization, and becoming more of who you already are. Every week, we are going to deconstruct how to build better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families. I'll be giving you access to world-class thought leaders to help give you the tools to answer this question. What are the simplest things that you can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and want to share the juiciest questions, topics, and often taboo conversations that I think I've always wanted to be a part of and I wanted to be having. So let's get better together. Hey everyone, welcome back to Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I am joined for an epic conversation, it can only be stated as such, with Gabrielle Bernstein, and we are discussing her new book, Happy Days, The Guided Path from Trauma to Profound Freedom and Inner Peace. Now, Gabby, if you haven't uh, heard of her for over 15 years, has been transforming lives, including several New York Times best-selling books, including The Universe Has Your Back, Super Attractor, and the her latest book, Happy Days, also hit New York Times uh, last week. I think it was number five or six on the chart. And she was featured on Oprah's Super Soul Sunday as a next generation thought leader. And the Oprah Winfrey Network chose Gabby to be part of the Super Soul 100, which is a dynamic group of trailblazers whose vision and life's work are bringing a higher level of consciousness to the world. Now, what did we talk about today? We spoke a lot about the stories that she shares in her new book, her own personal traumas, losses, shame, and how she mitigated some of these challenges. So we deconstruct some of the differences, some of the different types of trauma, how we can begin to bear witness to that trauma and what we can do about it. And we talk a little bit about reparenting and how we as children can become uh, broken or as she describes in her book, fractured from our energetic source, from the love within us. And we start talking about IFS, which is internal family systems. And we talk about some of the specifics in this therapeutic uh, modality, like exiled parts of ourselves when we develop, um, you know, compensatory uh, behaviors like protectors and controllers, these people or these constructs, uh, within us to help save and protect our, uh, you know, inner shame and inner child. We talk about shame, the origins of shame, physical reactions and responses to shame. Um, And we move into how to discuss and how to cultivate self-compassion and some actionable therapeutics that have been really helpful for Gabby and I share some that that have been very helpful for me as well. 
you are going to want to share this episode far and wide. I want you to share this with your girlfriend, with your coworker, with your mother, with your sister, with someone who you think can really benefit from this. And I think that the answer is everybody can, because we've all experienced trauma in some form or another. And I think that this book is a beautiful stepping off point to collective healing. So without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Gabrielle Bernstein. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause. And mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam Minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. Gabby Bernstein, welcome to The Better Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you here. So good to meet you. So yeah. wonderful to meet you. And you, and you. And I am so excited about our conversation today. We're going to be talking about your latest book. I have it in my hands here for those of you watching on YouTube. It's called Happy Days, The Guided Path from Trauma to Profound Freedom and Inner Peace. Quite a title and subtitle. Um, and I wanted to, um, I wanted to just start, uh, there's a lot to unpack uh, in this book. Uh, much more so than we're going to be able to unpack in our conversation together. So anybody who's listening to this strongly recommend that they pick up the book. But I guess my first question was one more of curiosity in terms of, you know, when I was reading the book, you so transparently and vulnerably and honestly share some of the darkest moments um, that you've experienced over the past you know, several years. And I guess my, my initial question to you as we dive deep into some of these subjects is what was the impetus for you to write this book at this point in your, mm. in your life? Because I'm standing in the seat of recovery. I'm sitting in the seat of recovery. I'm standing in that recovery. I am able to proudly put my face on the title with the cover and have it say happy days, the guided path from trauma to profound freedom and inner peace and stand behind that and to say, yeah, I'm on the other side. That was the only way it was going to be safe enough for me to write this book was to really be living on the other side, living the promise of the book, frankly. Right. And one of the things that you had said, um, and you were talking about a moment where you hadn't start started yet sharing about some of the, uh, there was a realization that I'll let you um, uh, talk about, but there was a point where you were speaking, you were at a speaking engagement and you had um, shared maybe a little too early. You said, you know, one in three, it's, you know, I'm with you, like same, same, same. And then you sort of had this recoil afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I just wanted to highlight that because I think that it is very important for, you know, leaders such as yourself, when you, when you write a book like this, when you talk about some of the subject matters uh, that you do for you to have 
you know, walk the walk, talk the talk, so to speak, and to be on the other side, as you said, um, because it can be, and you talk about this in the book too, which I'd love for you to expand on how it can be, if you haven't sort of worked it out yet, that it can almost be triggering not only to you, but, but the reader who may have had similar experiences. Yeah. I, I anticipate that many of the readers right now have a sense of security in the writing because I'm in that safe place now. Whereas when I first, I remembered childhood trauma when I was 36. And right when I remembered that, it explained to me why I was a cocaine addict, why I was a workaholic, why I had all these different protection mechanisms built up. And it helped me understand what I was trying to protect was never having to face that memory. But what I realized was, right away, the part of, there's a part of me that always wants to like give and serve and share my experience. But I share very vulnerably in that book that my, my speaking coach said, no, not now it's too soon. If you do this too soon, it's going to trigger you and your audience. And just even in that micro moment of just saying to a audience member, one in three, including me, and just acknowledging the trauma publicly was, was activating. And so that's why it took me until 2022 to really release this book because it was my commitment to being on the other side of that, that allowed me to write this book in a way that was safe for me to recount and to, to show up for these stories and to be in the truth of these stories and the methods and the recovery and to live, to tell what recovery looks like. But it also allowed me to be a presence of safety for the reader. So I've received a lot of messages from my readers saying, I feel so safe in this conversation because of the way that you're taking care of me in this book. And that was a high priority for me because it's very, very scary to talk about trauma. These days, it's much easier than it ever was before because we're just having to face the truth. We're, We're really being forced to face the truth so that we could just survive these times. And the, but, but it's very delicate. And I had the privilege of having some of the best therapists, you know, on speed dial and having access to some of the most beautiful treatments and things that I was able to use and that I share about very openly in the book. So I can give the reader the inspiration to maybe find out about these therapies, but not everyone has the privilege of being able to get to that. And so I want to be a space holder for this human that's going to go through this journey of slowly and gently and cautiously peeling back the layers. And all throughout the book, I say, okay, if this is too much for you, like just keep reading and don't do this exercise or come back to this chapter when you're ready or just read the book right now. And in a year from now, try one of the practices or put it down and come back to it when you're ready. So I just want the reader to feel very safe in my presence. And I believe that you have that as an author, we have the power to transmit that energy and, 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 and put that energy into every reprint of the book or every audible play of the book, because the intention has resonance and that resonance comes through. And so, and also just the way I speak to the reader, I write to the reader and I just say, I know you and I see you and I, and I, and I care about you. And even at the very end of the book, I'm telling them how much I care about them and, and how much I can see them. And I say, you know, you, maybe no one's ever said that to you before, right? And maybe it feels awkward to have a, a, an author you've never met say that to you, but I really want you to feel it. And I'm so grateful to hear the feedback that people do feel that mm-hmm. in these pages. Beautiful. Um, if I can just read a, a 
an excerpt from your book because I wanted to double click on um, there's some, your the co- the language that you use as well is so colorful um, and so beautiful and um, in early on in the book you write um, from a spiritual perspective the painful experiences we as kids uh, the the painful experiences we had as kids were fractures in our energetic connection to the love within us or God within us. Each minor or major fracture, such as being bullied or feeling unsafe, separated us further and further from the source of love. In some cases of trauma with a big T, these fractures can be so severe that the child grows up living in in a constant state of fear. And I just love this passage where you describe it as a fracture, um, as a break from you know, you can call it God, you can call it Allah, you can, you know, what source, you know, what the universe, what, whatever uh, energetic um, or spiritual connection that you have. But I just think that that word um, fracture is, is so poignant. And I mm-hmm. wondered if you might say a little bit more about our connection uh, or, or disconnection from love or source and how the experience of you know, we've had uh, Dr. Nicole LaPera on the show a couple of times. She's talked about expanding the definition of trauma, which, I, you know, you've integrated into your book with this idea of big T, little t trauma. But how can, how can experiencing any type of perceived trauma, how can that become a fracture in our connection to, to ourself and to source? Well, we all experience trauma and some of it is with a big T and some of it was, is with a small t. And so you've, you've identified the difference in, in that passage. When we have that trauma as a child and we don't necessarily have a place to bring it to process it, whether it be a therapist or a secure household, what happens is is it becomes this moment in time when we almost have a soul departure, particularly with big T trauma, and uh, we leap out of our body spiritually. And even in my case, so much so that I literally dissociated from the memory. And we, we fr- it's a fracture in our system. And what happens is, is we build up all these fragmented parts of who we are. And those parts are these protectors that are just working all day, every day on high alert to manage the impermissible feelings of that exiled part that got so thrown out in the, in the dust, right? So the child part that was abused or the child part that was told they were stupid or just gets locked up under lock and key. That's the exiled part. And then all these protectors just show up and they're like, I'm going to manage that forever. And so that's the fracture. It's, it's a separation from that source of love. Right now I look at my three-year-old and he's so innocent and his just true love. He's just in the presence of that love. And, and I, I, I pray to be creating a secure environment for him for when he, and I say when, because it happens to every human, when something gets fractured for him, he can come back to a safe environment to feel secure and soothed and therefore resilient in that experience. But most of us did not have that secure home environment, not necessarily because our parents were horrible or not, but, but nobody pulls us aside and says, here's the handbook. And so we we've grew up with these feelings of not being seen, not being soothed, not feeling secure. And we didn't have a safe place to deal with those fractures. And so we live in these fragmented parts of ourselves, just constantly managing the suffering from the moment in time where we left, where, where we left that source of love. Yeah. And I, you're talking about something so incredibly important, which is this idea of, um, well, there's there's many th- there's many things to unpack here. First is this idea of of feeling safe uh, in our bodies, and then the second piece is 
taking from our parents, you know, the, 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 the regular, the emotional regulation or the safe space that they gave or didn't give to us. We then repeat those behaviors. We repeat, we repeat that with ourselves. And I think that um, to your point, it, it, this is not a blame game. It's not like, oh, it's all mom's fault. Oh, it's all debt. Like, you know, as you said, there's um, no one gave you a handbook when you were leaving the hospital, right? It would be so great if somebody, you know, I have three children, so I know absolutely what you're talking about when we have situations where, you know, you you just have no idea what the path, sometimes what the path forward is. And um, I think that it's a tall order for a parent to not only be able to reparent themselves, but to also say, okay, even though my child is having an absolute, like they're just falling apart, like, you know, unfurling like a ball of yarn right now, I'm going to be present for them. And I'm not going to superimpose my own fear of them getting angry. I'm not going to tell them, oh, shush, you're fine. You know, like it's, it's really, really difficult, um, for parents to do that. And so as, as, um, Dr. Shafali is in my mind where she, um, she said once, you know, we're basically just all, you know, 13 year olds in like adult bodies, like walking around sort of emotionally immature, not sure how to, um, reparent. And what yeah. our, ourselves, and what I um, what I would love for you to talk a little bit more about is some of these compensatory behaviors, these these protectors uh, that you uh, just mentioned around, um, you know, maybe being uh, really difficult or really, uh, you know, maybe a perfectionist or a workaholic, mm-hmm. or some of these more socially accepted uh, sort of we'll call them addictive behaviors, maybe. Totally. Um, I would love for you to maybe unpack that a little bit in maybe mm-hmm. your own personal uh, through line and story. And then, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And I also want to come back to reparenting yourself because this book is a process of reparenting yourself. The last one of the ninth chapter in the book is called reparenting yourself. Yes. And it's, it's, it's taking the methods that I applied for my son to, to parent him with safety and security. And I started to apply them to myself. So we can come back to that. But I think that in many ways, this book is a must read for anyone who decides to be a parent, because this is the manual I want to hand somebody because it says, well, there's a lot of ways you could be a great parent, but if you don't do the work on yourself, you can't be steady in your system to be that sense of safety and security and soothing for the child, no matter what your great intentions are. And there's a lot of parents out there with the perfect intentions, but they've been unwilling to do their own inner work. And so no matter what, they're going to be in an activated state around their child and they're going to create the ripple effect of that pattern. So to be, to be a great parent, you had to do the great work to reparent yourself, period end of story. So there's that. Uh, and if you haven't done that work yet, just, this is your moment, you know, say, great, I'm learning now. I'm ready to start. It's never too late. Your children, their brains are still developing until they're 25. You can always re, re, you know, reprocess their, their, their entire system and create new neural pathways with them very, very quickly. I always do that with my kids when I, when I am like, oh, I just, I just, just lost it as a mom. I'm like, can we get a redo? Can we do a redo? Well, that's, like, can a, we whole do redo? Other, that's a whole other thing, which we need to do for ourselves as well, but it's the repair. Yeah. We, you know, we're going to fuck up. So what do we do? We repair quickly. And that shows the child, oh, okay, mommy's human. She's not perfect. She can have a bad moment. She can come back. I can, I can activate her and she can still forgive herself and come back to me. Yeah. So, so we can come back to that, but the, the, the protectors are these, fragmented parts that we have 
in place that, that come on real strong after the dissociate, the, the, the dismantling of the, of that part of us. And we become that love part just gets fractured. And these, these protectors, and I'm speaking now in IFS language, internal family systems, which I'm trained in and, and have also practiced in my own therapy for a decade. And it's this whole concept of these exiled parts. And then these protectors, the protectors are the addicts. The protectors are the controllers. The protectors are the ways we numb out. The protectors are the um, the obsessive compulsive. The protectors are the worrier. The uh, anxious. The anxiety is a protector. The, the the gastrointestinal issues are the protector. The migraines are a protector. Anything we can do to not have to feel the deeper suffering of our wounded child exiled parts. And then the practice that's so profound here, and I introduce it in chapter seven of the book is that we all have self. And before we have that fracture, that we are, we are self, we are compassionate, we are calm, we are courageous, we are curious, we are committed, we are, we are connected. And we all have self. And it never leaves us. That self never leaves us. We just built up walls against it because we've been living in these manager protector roles. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing, salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. And so when we start to tap into that presence of self and get direct access to self-energy, the part of us that can be loving and compassionate and calm and courageous. We can then extend that self energy to these parts of us that are so on high alert. So imagine if you notice yourself in the moment and you're massively controlling a situation because you're trying to protect yourself from feeling out of control. And instead of going so far into that behavior, you stopped and you noticed the part, you noticed where it felt in your body and you noticed what it was what it looked like in your mind's eye. You notice if it had a gender or an age. And then you got curious and started to check in with what you know about it. How, you know, how old is it? What is it? What do you know? What is there any historical information there? And then you asked it what it needed. And you're like, hey, controller, what do you need right now? Imagine what it would say. If you weren't in such an extreme role, what else would you be doing? And then you in self self was there for that part and said, okay, I'll help you soothe right now. I'll help you go for a walk right now. Be a very different way of living. Indeed. And, and I think it's um, so often in, um, you know, maybe the self-help space will say um, the idea is always like, you got to just never listen to that inner critic. You always have mm -hmm. to, you know, kill it. And it's like, listen, this is like Thelma and Louise. That yeah. voice is with you for the long mm -hmm. haul. So it, it would behoove you to make friends with her or him or, you know, whatever. Um, 
and to and to get to understand the motives behind that protector or that controller, um, as you were as you were uh, describing, and then learning to give her or that you know that part of yourself that which she needs. I'm, I'm using she because that's just how, you know, yeah, I that's, that's, that's your yeah. parts. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. And so I, um, and I often, uh, so I've, I've, uh, and you, you said, I think in the book you were talking about little Gabby, I always talk about baby Steffi. So I like baby Steffi is like scared of being abandoned. You know, she's scared of never being like good enough or smart enough or capable enough. That's like her big, that's what throws her up into like a, a rage really. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also what, I, and I would love for you to speak to this in the, in the uh, vertical of IFS. And I don't know if this is, um, uh, this is consistent with it, but in the same way that I have a baby Steffi or you have a little Gabby, there's also um, for lack of a better word, I call her like my old wise woman, you know, that's like mm. the grandmother, all wise, you know, she's, and I sort of imagine her with like long white hair. She's like a robe on, she has like crinkles around her eyes. She has like some beautiful pendant that sits on her heart. And she always has the answer for me, you know, and sometimes I talk to Wonder Woman, sometimes I talk to Cleopatra, sometimes I talk to, you know, but there's always this older wise woman that I also call on like, what you know, it's like grandma, you know, or like some intelligent woman that has more lived experience than I, what she might do in this moment. Is that part of, I mean, maybe there's not an equivalent in IFS, but is there um, something like that, that you might call on when you can see little Gabby is, you know, she needs love. She needs to feel safe and soothed. In IFS, we would say that the images that you're having, or if it's a connection actually to a spirit guide of some kind, the essence that you're tapping into is has self-like qualities. So that's why it's so soothing for you. And it's nice when that imagery comes up because it's tapping into your own connection to that self-like quality. You're, you're, you're noticing it. In IFS, it would say though that self is is an energy. It's a, it's, it's a, it's, it's non-physical. It's, it's, it's a presence. And so when you, when you sit with that, that elder woman, let her and that vision of her infuse that presence of self energy into you and, or just, or just remind you of it because it's your own ability to self-soothe those. Well, I mean, listen, for me, I have a story in the book where Dick Schwartz, the founder of IFS wrote the forward for this book. And I had him read it and he said, I, he, I said, is everything kosher here? Cause this was before I'd even done my training. I was just really speaking about IFS from the standpoint of the patient. And he said, everything's fine. Everything's you know good. Uh, I just, there's one part where you tell a story about how you were, uh, I, I suffered from insomnia when I had postpartum depression yes. and in my recovery from that, I still had some PTSD around it. And so one night I was having trouble sleeping and I started to just check in with my parts. And so I started to notice the insomnia part, which is a protector and the anxiety that was behind the insomnia. And then I started to relax those parts. And then in the visualization and the relaxation, I saw myself holding my son and helping him as a baby fall back asleep. And then in my mind's eye, I saw myself, my baby self in my own arms. And what I had said earlier in that chapter, in the first draft of it, I said, myself was holding my baby. And Dick said, the only correction I have is that your, your, your physical self isn't self. Self is an energy. And then I wrote back to this is all happening in an email. And I said, is it possible that self gave me that vision? And he said, yes, that is possible. 
So self is giving you the vision of Cleopatra, of the elder woman, of dot, dot, dot. Pretty cool, right? Mm. So, so it's not that that elder woman is, you know, is your, is your, is going to be, she's going to show up when you're tuned into self because she's representing those qualities. I love that. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, your experience with uh, PPD, with postpartum depression. You do a beautiful job uh, really, I, you know, really describing the suffering uh, that you were uh, having. And I wanted to uh, just sort of highlight this because there was a couple of uh, important points that came up um, that I wanted to highlight. One, um, I think sometimes, you know, I'm a chiropractor by training, uh, and sometimes there can be in the vein of, uh, we'll say wellness, uh, that everything can sort of be overcome with an adjustment, a workout, a meditation, a supplement. Um, and I think that, um, I, I would love for you to tell your story and how you came to, the, uh, the, the decision to, uh, medicate after, uh, giving birth to your son and how that allowed you to continue your healing journey. Mm, um, thank and, you. Yeah. Yes. I'd love for and you to thank you as someone in this holistic space for being, giving voice to this conversation, because, uh, I, I just, well, I'll get to that. So, uh, I, have a story in the book and the chapter is called don't call me crazy. And it opens with a story of me being, I'm in the backseat of my car and my four month old son is next to me. And my husband is driving us to breakfast at my in-laws and it's mother's day. And in the back of the seat, I say under my breath, I want to die. And I meant it. And then I sat at the kitchen table in my mother-in-law's house and I started hysterically crying. And my sister-in-law was consoling me. My mother-in-law looks at me and she says, it's okay, honey. All moms have anxiety. All new moms have anxiety. And I looked at her and I was like, this isn't just new mom anxiety because I'd been suffering for months with insomnia, agoraphobia, panic attacks, depression, suicidal ideation. And I had spent four months or more running from the possibility of what this diagnosis could be. I tried everything, you know, adjustments, <laughs> supplements, psychic readings, meditation. I mean, every tool in my handbook and I was brought up homeopathic. So medication wasn't really on the table for me. And I probably at the time was part of the stigma, you know, by, by saying to somebody who was depressed saying, go, go try this meditation. You know, I didn't realize at the time that I was having a biochemical condition that could not be solved by meditation at that time. And so I hit a huge bottom and four months later, and I found myself having my therapist had an intervention with me and my husband, and I was led to a psychiatrist and she diagnosed me on the spot with PPD and PPA, postpartum anxiety, which is a form of postpartum depression. And she said, listen, I know you're resisting this medication and this diagnosis, but I want you to know that you've done a lot of work on yourself, a lot of trauma work, a lot of uh, spiritual work, a lot of therapeutic practice. And I shared with her my, my childhood trauma and what I, was, what I was dealing with. And she said, listen, this medication is a gift for you because it's going to give you a safer baseline. And in that baseline of safety, you'll be able to go deeper in your trauma recovery. 
And when she said that, then I said, oh, sign me the fuck up for that because I wanted to go so much deeper, but so much fear and resistance and, and just terror blocked me. And so that gift of postpartum depression gave me the gift of accepting the guidance of the medita- medication, which gave me the gift of being able to go deeper in my meditation and deeper in my EMDR and somatic experiencing and IFS and three therapy sessions a week to really come out the other side. So I share that story very openly in the book and very publicly on the news and in podcasts because the wellness stigma around prescription drugs was really keeping me from getting safety and it might've taken my life. And so I don't blame the wellness world. It was my, my acceptance of these stories, my, my focus on these stories. And yes, of course we have, um, so many moments where people are over-medicated or unnecessarily medicated. And I'll speak to that. And I've spoken to that for years, but there are times when, when if you're having a biochemical condition, you need medication, you need that kind of psychiatric support. And I lend it to this story of the man that's drowning. And he's saying, you know, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And then this helicopter comes and he's like, I don't need a helicopter, God's going to help me. And a boat comes, I don't need a boat, God's going to help me. Raft comes, I don't need the raft, God's going to help me. And he drowns and then he gets to heaven and he says to God, where were you? And God's like, I sent you a freaking boat and a helicopter and a raft. And, you know, so... For me, I had to finally get on the raft and get on the boat and take the medication. And it was, I, I decided that day to see that God was in the medication, the same way God would be in you. If I came to you to do that work, God would be working through you the same way God was working through the psychiatrist or God was working through my therapist and in the medication. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think that there can be a beautiful uh, coming together because often, so often, these two worlds seem to be at odds with each other. But I, you know, I, I tend to be, I, I like to sometimes joke and say, I'm like in the radical middle, right? It's like yeah. you can actually sort of take, like, you don't need to be so, like, it's only this way, it's only that mm-hmm. way. There's some nuance to it. There's, you know, bio individuality, as you were saying. Like, yes, there's issues with over prescribing and, inappropriate prescriptions, that's certainly an issue, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't take that medication for where Mm -hmm. you were in your life to be able to facilitate your Mm -hmm. healing. Yeah. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit, uh, if we can, uh, about shame, because I think that I work, I work a lot with women and this seems to be, and this could just be a bias because that's the subset of people that I uh, tend to work with, but shame is almost, you know, it, 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 it's, it's so pervasive that it prohibits us from um, achieving the goals that we want. It self-sabotages. We don't, uh, you know, move the way that we want to. We don't eat the foods that we want. We don't have the jobs that bring us joy. Um, and, you know, I'm saying this from, in some ways, as you mentioned, like from a place of privilege, sometimes that's not possible. Um, but sometimes, uh, many times, uh, the women that I've worked with will often not have the, they can't see the beauty in them. Like if I, if I said to you, Gabby, what name five things that you like about me, you'd probably be able to, I mean, we've just met, so maybe not, but let's just, I could that, do it right now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> no problem. You, you would be able to kind of name, I would be able to say you're articulate and you're, you know, I would be able to name, but if I turned that question and I said, you know, now do the same exercise for yourself. I've done this with so many of my, and people, like, I just saw your face. You're like, Meh, you know, like, I don't want to oh, I could do, I could do it with myself right now. 
But yeah. for many years, my mantra was I'm a piece of shit. Right. Even in the midst of, you know, this is my ninth book, even like six books in, I <clears throat> believed in myself. I was proud of myself. I had a lot of self-love and self-respect. But when, when I got triggered, I went right to, I'm a piece of shit. Right. And I didn't even know that I had shame until I was 36 years old right. <laughs> because shame is the most impermissible feeling that we run from. Yes. So we, and it's, it's too terrifying to face because what that shame really means is that I was unlovable and I'm inadequate or I am unlovable and I am inadequate. We, those of us who have experienced sexual abuse, the shame is that is taking on the shame of the abuser and the shame of the stigma and the shame of the, the it's my fault. And we have several different kinds of shame responses. I have a whole chapter on shame in the book and we have several different shame responses. And one of them is to attack others, right? So if we feel shame, we want to send it off to somebody else because we don't want to deflect out what we don't want to feel within. Another is to attack ourselves. You know, I'm a piece of shit. Just can't bear the shame. So I'm just going to attack myself. Denial is a way of responding to shame. So saying, oh, it's not, it wasn't that bad. My, my, my upbringing was just fine. Everything's okay. Denial is a big one. And it's almost dissociation in many ways because you just sort of shut it out and pretend like it didn't happen. And so there's all these different responses to shame. And the more we start to witness the responses to shame, the closer we can get to start of recognizing what we might be running from. But that's a delicate process. And it has to, I, I very delicately titrate in and out of that conversation in the book, because I don't, you know, I did, I led a, I led a live workshop last weekend for the launch of this book. And I led, I, I was really questioning, do I talk about the shame in this workshop? And I did, and I did it safely. And we, we talked openly about it. And uh, I'm sure it was still activating because to even just speak of shame is, is super activating for people. How do we, how do we begin to you know, bear witness to that? How do we begin to even become aware that that may be the thing that's driving the bus or one of the many factors that are? Because as you said, we, you know, one of the things is denial and you say a lie enough times and it starts to become the truth. So much so that when you're 36 or when you're 44, it's like, you, you know, you don't know which way is up anymore because you've said the same story, you've reprogrammed, you know, the historical uh, accounts in your mind. How do we begin to, um, yeah. How do we begin to bear witness to that and, and to lean into that in a safe, uh, in a safe and contained way? You don't focus on the shame. You focus on the reaction to the shame. So you, you would look at the dissociation. You would work with the attacking of others. You would work with the attacking of yourself. You would work with the denial because when we, we would work with the protectors, because shame is an exiled child part and you can't just go straight to shame. You have to sort of relax. You have to relax the protectors. So you would get to know the protectors. You would start to sense into what they need. You would extend self-energy to those protector parts, compassion in particular. And as you start to work with those protectors and start to relax and, and let, them, let them be a little less extreme, then it becomes safer to start to connect more closely to the shame. But I also would really advise that if you're wanting to do that kind of shame work to do it with a therapist. Right. It's really extreme. And those physical reactions to shame, I'm, I'm one of the things I appreciated about your book 
was so often when we think about um, emotions or the mind, we think that this exists just in the confines of the skull, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's just in the cranium, right? And Mm -hmm. there's this, um, I talk about this idea of like sinking beneath the throat, which is something like, you know, I'm a recovery, you know, we'll call it a recovering type A personality. It's very uncomfortable for me to not run logistics and strategy and algorithms. It's much difficult for more difficult for me to feel right. So I think that what I really appreciated about your book was this idea of no trauma lives, you know, shame and trauma are not just thoughts in the, in the brain, right? They exist in the nervous system. And of course we know the nerve, like the anatomy of the nervous system is that we have a central nervous system. It goes everywhere. Um, and when we are doing work like breath work, which is something that I just love, um, or even, I know this is not in your book, but I'll just say from a personal account of using, uh, psychedelics, let's say, um, when I was having those experiences, both the breath work, uh, meditation does this as well. And the psychedelic, like my body was shaking. Like I get mm-hmm. claw hands. So, like when I'm doing breath work, sometimes like I can't unclamp my hands. Um, so I think it's a really important construct that you talked about, that there are physical manifestations uh, of shame. And you talked about it in like, you know, maybe you, maybe you get verklempt a little bit, or there's like physical sensations that you are just mentioning. But I think that like trauma lives in the body. It's not in the body. Yeah. 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 And so what you're talking about, which is so beautiful is that trembling that's actually fully processed. That's letting the trauma process out of you. It's taking those, uh, those truncated energy balls in your presence in your body in your nervous system and it moves it out and even the clawing you know like 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 it can be almost like this was a a a a position or a pose or something that resembles an energy that that's stuck for you and then it and then through the work it can move through and so I have a whole chapter about hiding behind the body, which is totally your chapter, right? And it's, <laughs> it's all about the ways. I mean, I'm sure you see patients over and over that come back and they have the same back pain, same back pain, same back yes, pain. Yes. And according to John Sarno, Dr. Sarno, who I write about in the book, you know, that back pain is impermissible rage. It's impermissible shame. It's impermissible terror that you have not faced and processed. And so it's going to keep showing up in the physical manifestations because the physical manifestations are just another protector part. They're there to protect you from having to face the shame, the rage, the impermissible. And so we would work with the physical the same way we would work with the protector actions, right? You'd notice, and what do I notice in my body? Where does it live? And you would, what do you, what do I know about it? What does it need? And give voice to it. When we speak the unspeakable, we can set our body free. Yeah. And one of the, one of the patterns, um, I'm no longer in, in physical practice, but practice for 16 years, uh, in a brick and mortar space, but always a hundred percent of the time, uh, the person was in some way spiritually or emotionally sick, especially before the, the physical, before the physical man, before the back pain, as you were That's saying, right. or the neck pain or the headaches or whatever. Um, just in closing, um, I wanted to, um, you know, I, th- I think that this book, as I've mentioned a few times already, when you write a book like this, of course, I think you have to have already done the work, which we've talked about. But I think that it allows others to to bear witness to your pain and your struggle and your journey. But in a way, 
that's such a beautiful thing because it it gives them permission to do the same. You know, yes. I think anybody who is a leader in this space as you are, um, I think it's really important to, um, you know, lead tell by example. Yeah. To tell the truth. And there's, it's like, there's truth here. There's honesty, there's transparency. And I think that it is going to be such a, a, a needle mover, if you will, uh, to help others to say, you know what, if Gabby, like, I'm like, yeah. I'm like her, I had something like, if she can do this, you know, I can take some of the lessons and some of the, you know, the privileged access that she has. And she's condensed that into, you know, call it 300 or 400 pages. And I can, I can also make my life you know, I can also have happy days. I can also have happy days ahead. Yeah. You actually just gave voice to what my mission of this book is. My mission for this book is to help people recognize that they're not alone and to know that there's a guided path because to your point, not everybody has had the privilege that I've had to be able to, you know, have Deepak on speed dial and be able to get, you know, to get counsel wherever I needed it and to have the therapeutic practices. But I used those, I used that privilege and I used those tools to come out the other side, become free so that I could live to tell how a reader can get there with or without therapy. Uh, I recommend therapy all throughout the book. And I think it's actually really mandatory for us as humans to have someone hold space for our our recovery, but not everybody has the privilege of that. And and I share a lot of resources as well of where people can find free counsel and where they can find uh, uh, aid if they need it. And, but, but the biggest thing is what we can do also in the moment for ourselves. And I write self-help books. I write books, spiritual self-help books to give people faith and direction and relief in the moment. And then I also really encourage them to go deeper with the counsel of others when they need it, particularly when it's this book and this conversation. And you give in the book, lots of resources. We'll make sure that we put the the link for the book, but also some of the resources that you, you have meditations and you have, um, you know, handouts and things I think on your website. So we'll make sure that that's in the show notes for our mm-hmm. readers as well. Gabby, it was wonderful to meet you. Wonderful to have this conversation. I hope one day that we're able to meet um, in person so I can just give you a big old hug. But yes, uh, I'm thinking in this whole conversation, you are my people. When can we hang out? (laughs) (laughs) I I like this woman. (laughs) Thank you. I've received that and I reflect that back to you. It's been a wonderful, uh, wonderful chat. And I know this is going to help so many of my listeners who have either experienced something similar to you or a parallel and it gives them a map. It gives them a way forward. All right. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and I must give you the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer here. This podcast better with Dr. Stephanie is for general information only and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare providers, advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship that has been formed and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. In other words, guys, be smart about this. Take it with a grain of salt. Take this information to your primary healthcare provider and have a discussion with him or her to make the best choice that is for you. Remember, I am a doctor, but I am not your doctor. And these conversations are meant for educational purposes only.